apple pie, baseball. And now, here's All-American Alan Olson. Welcome to today's show. This is Alan Olson. American Dreams, the keys to life success, where we talk about how to live the life that you want to live. And this is Nadine Camera. What are your dreams? What do you want out of life? What defines success? Well, Nadine, we have a really exciting show today. And shortly, we'll have John Porter at Three Bell Capital coming. He's the founder of Three Bell Capital, which is a uh, financial investment firm dealing in the secondary market here, as well as other investments in the Bay Area. Well, that sounds very interesting. We'll be really looking forward to hearing what he has to say about those private equities. Uh, the secondary market's been exciting with the uh, news of Facebook and Twitter and, and all these companies that are uh, not necessarily going the, uh, the traditional route to uh, trading on the open market. But uh, before we go into that, uh, I'd like to talk about finding your golden ticket. You know, during this time of the year, Many people read the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. It's the story of a cold-hearted man who uh, is changed to the appearance of three ghosts. The story begins as the ghost of his business partner appears to tell him of the fate that he'll have if he did not change his ways and care for the lives of others. Following this appearance, Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas past. Uh, the ghost of Christmas present and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. These appearances cause Scrooge to change and realize that life is not always about money. You know, this story is especially an important reminder in our own lives, especially during this time of the year. It is our family, our friends, our neighbors, maybe their goals that we have set that we want to accomplish during our life. This time of the year may be a good time for us to evaluate our lives and to make the changes we want to so that we can live the life that we want to. That's right, Alan. The Dickens classic gives us a message of charity and doing good for others. Don't you agree? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think people will go through life and they'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get caught in the day to day. You know, we may have uh, things that stand in front of us. Maybe there's a big financial transaction that we're, we're trying to pay down a debt or maybe we're trying to acquire more debt in order to uh, to purchase a home. But typically, money plays a driving role in a lot of the decisions that we make each and every day. And um, and and when the opportunity comes up to uh, give money away, uh, for some it it becomes a challenge. It it does. But on the other hand, whether it's giving money away or your time or talents away, um, there are many who've been influenced. By by actually going forward and being generous and being charitable, um, and they seem you seem to, even though you're blessing the lives of others, you also seem to receive those blessings as well. You know, sometimes we're taught lessons of, you know, within in our uh, acts of charity that we weren't quite expecting. There was a a, a lady that we met. Her name was Zenaida. Potente. And many years ago, I served as a missionary over in the Philippines. And I met this lady. She was a hunchback, uh, never married. And um, she had challenges in life as a result of her handicap. And not only was she never married, but she was never able to really find work. And so every Sunday, uh, you know, we would find her walking around town and uh, she'd be looking for who, who died in town. And uh, and she would go and accompany the funeral. She marched in with them, whether she really knew the person or not. She just wanted to be there because she knew that 
it was a difficult time for a lot of people. And uh, so Zenaida lived with her mother. Her mother was a school teacher on a limited pension. And, um, you know, her mother, uh, at the age of 90, finally passed away and uh, left Zenaida by herself, um, pretty much homeless, left to go out on the streets and beg every day. And uh, so we decided that our family would do something really nice for Zenaida. We we decided that we would get uh, some shoes and old clothes and we would send it over to Zenaida and uh, then she could take these items and use them to sell to other people uh, in the community, raise a little bit of money, help to support herself and, uh, and, and so explain to the kids about what we're doing and excitedly we all gathered together the things that we had around the house, put a big box in the mail and uh, set it off and sent tonight a note, you know, you know, love the Olsons and, uh, and, and we waited and about two months later, we got a box back in the mail from Zenaida. And, uh, I said, what's this about? You know, she was barely living hand to mouth. And, uh, so we as a family got together and, uh, we found out that Zenaida sold all the things that we sent her and, and, and bought stuff and sent it back to us. <laughs> <laughs> So therein lies the lesson that Zenaida was doing just fine in her life, that she was rewarded in her own charitable acts, and she felt that, uh, you know, that that it was that she got more joy and satisfaction out of giving of herself, her time and her means to others. So that's an excellent story, and and especially this time of year, but not only this time of year, but throughout the year. There are plenty of opportunities for us to give of ourselves, whether it be our money, our our time, our talents. We have, you know, we have the rotary, we have the homeless shelter, we have the food banks, many of the grocery stores that have containers where you could, you know, purchase items and and leave for those. And and I understand the these shelters and and food banks are really struggling this year. The economy has been very difficult, and so. Um, for for many of us it, it that that do have it, it it is good to to not only reach out during this time of year the season of giving but also throughout the year because it's important to help others and and there is a something that comes back as Zenaida learned by by being charitable you know it it's a difficult thing to grasp a difficult concept sometimes because we get wrapped up in our in our in what's in front of us you know but but if we take a moment and we think about putting ourselves at the twilight of life, or you know, some people have the uh, the wake up call during life that uh, you know they may suffer a near death experience, and those people are not running to look at what's in their bank account. Right. Yeah. You know, they 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 realize you know, hey, I'm lucky to be alive, and uh, as a result of being here, um, I think I'm going to make some changes. But if uh, if people will just think for a moment. Yeah, the you know the, after your life is is over, you know what do you want people to say about you? You know what what do you want users to read like? You know and uh, and I think it it gives cause for reflection. Do I need to change anything that I'm doing today? Yes, yeah. I agree, Alan. This has been a wonderful leadership moment that you share. I really enjoy the leadership moments at the beginning of your at, of this program that we do, um, and it really is true. We we need to, as as you put it, find our golden ticket. What is that golden ticket that's going to uh, uh, show that we are uh, generous and charitable? 
and and being kind to our fellow man. Well, very good, Nadine. Well, we'll look forward to uh, having John Porter come on and join us shortly. Three Bells Capital. Um, he's over the secondary market. And uh, stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. This is Alan Olson with America Dreams. We're here today with John Porter, the founder of Three Bell Capital. Welcome, John. Thanks very much, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. So, John, can you tell me about what you do in your business? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Three Bell Capital is an independent boutique wealth management firm um, located on Sand Hill Road uh, in Menlo Park, California. Um, we offer uh, we offer boutique. Uh, wealth management services to select families, and we also offer corporate retirement plans and secondary market transactions to certain corporations and families throughout the Bay Area. Yeah, secondary market. Well, this is a this is the popular buzzword around Silicon Valley now. Here, that's affecting uh, companies like Facebook and Twitter. And uh, can you go into what what exactly is the secondary market? That's uh, a great question. Um, easiest way to think about the secondary market is to contrast it with what most people have experience with, which are the the public markets like the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. The hallmark of those types of um, exchanges or those markets are regulation, um, technology, infrastructure, um, basically a uh, a very structured way of uh, buying and selling securities. Um, the secondary market is really more ad hoc. Um, there is no technical market for it. It's just individuals, either companies or, or people, that are buying and selling securities um, privately through either auctions or individual transactions. And this has really grown in the, the recent years then. It, it, so. it definitely has. Um, I think probably the easiest example is really you know, looking at the, the Facebook um, secondary market, which has developed. And essentially what we're seeing is um, we're, we're seeing a, a rapidly appreciating security. Um, we're seeing more and more shares being issued uh, inside private companies. And you're seeing you know founders and early employees and executives who are wanting to sell some of those securities um, based on the fact that IPOs and mergers are just taking a lot longer to occur right now. So you got people with the majority of their net worth tied up in a in a, in a you know individual stock um, from a company that they worked with, and they want to have a down payment for a house. They want to buy a car. They want to access some of that uh, some of that capital. And in order to do that, they need to sell that stock as their primary asset. You know, in the uh, in the public arena, they have uh, certain trading windows in which they say, you know, if you're an insider, an employer of the company, you can only trade. During these period of months, or after earnings released, you know how how does that work in the secondary market? That's actually a very good question, and it's it's one that is not being addressed um, very heavily right now. Most people think about insider trading, Section sixteen insider trading, in terms of public markets. So, uh, you know, if somebody knows that some momentous event is going to happen, you know, at Apple, and they trade on that security. Um, you know, based on that knowledge and the rest of the, the the rest of the investing public doesn't necessarily know it. Therefore, they have an informational advantage. Um, that's that's considered insider trading. The same laws actually apply to private company transactions and private company securities, um, but it's not something right now that is being heavily regulated. I think that 
um, what you will see is I think you will definitely see the SEC start to crack down on that more and more and start to investigate that more and more as the secondary market continues to develop from something which is sort of a fledgling market into something that's much more robust and permanent. So they really don't have, you know, in, in short, a process in place to really police an inside trader. They don't. There are no such things as trading windows. Um, you're still subject to the same general requirements. You're not allowed to trade on material non-public information. But the SEC just doesn't have any form of um, regulatory infrastructure to investigate that. And part of that is because these transactions are ad hoc. They're sort of one-off um, deals that occur between private individuals. So let's talk about the uh an individual, they're an employee of a company like Facebook or Twitter. Mm-hmm. They got secondary market going. They want to sell securities. What what would the process be for them to sell? Obviously, there's there's no uh, market maker out there for the security. Or yeah, there there really isn't. Uh, I think the closest thing to a to a market maker would be some of the auction sites which have popped up. Um, so those would be like a shares post or a second market. Um, that's probably the closest thing that you have to, uh, you know, a, a place or, or a portal where, you know, buyers and sellers can come together. Um, those particular sites operate uh, similar to an auction site. Uh, they'll, they'll probably kill me if I say eBay, but it, it, it's very similar in the sense that um, there are sellers that have securities. Um, they issue, uh, you know, a floor price on that security. Um, a second market or a shares post will float the auction out and buyers who are pre-qualified will go in and they can bid on those securities. And if the pricing matches, then the sales consummated. So that that's sort of option number one in terms of selling um, those securities. Um, option number two would be a private placement transaction. And that's really what my group specializes in. So a private placement transaction, by contrast, is not an auction at all. It's a single transaction that's negotiated um, between a single buyer and a single seller. Um, so typically, um, it'll, the seller will be someone who has, you know, Facebook or Twitter securities by virtue of the fact that they worked there or potentially were an early investor there. And the buyer could be, you know, anybody from a large institutional investor to a hedge fund, to uh, a group of, uh, investors that have pooled their money together to purchase securities. Why would, uh, someone want to invest in these private securities? What would motivate them as an investor? It's, uh, it, it really boils down to the same reason that anybody purchases a security. They, they have a fundamental belief that the value of that security is going to go up. The reason why you would purchase it while it's private is because it's a much more limited market. Um, much fewer shares have typically been issued than once a company IPOs. Um, and generally speaking, a buyer would have a belief, just using Facebook as, a, as an easy example, that the, the, the price is going to appreciate substantially once it actually does IPO. And there's a lot of support for that, that position. And generally speaking, that's why your typical investor would, would look to acquire a position privately before it hits the public markets. There are institutional investors who I, I have worked with in the past, and they have acquired shares for strategic purposes. So for those folks, it's less about the appreciation potential of the security, and it's more about whether or not they can gain access to the private company executives um, by virtue of the fact that they become a large shareholder in the company. 
Imagine, for example, that IBM decides that it really wants to have a, a strong strategic relationship with Facebook. And as a result, IBM looks for, you know, two to three percent of, of the stock. They purchase that that stock. That gives them access to a lot of information and a lot of time with the executives. If they decide that they want to build something out in the future, um, certainly that's one way of, of you know, front loading that process. You know, so so a uh, a seller of the securities. Uh, what, what does the company have to say about you know the employees pledging their securities on the market? Are they concerned? Do they come and re- respond to uh, you know the first right of refusal, or what? What are they? Uh, how do how do they monitor this? Yeah, they're, I think they're very concerned about it. Um, although I think they're starting to realize that that they can't block them completely. Um, Recent case law that has come out has has more or less established uh, as a general principle that companies can't uh, outright block the sale of individual securities. So once an employee has um, the right to you know the right to the securities, in other words, they've exercised their options or they've met the vesting requirements of their restricted stock units, and they actually have a security. They, they can engage in a private placement transaction. They can place those securities um, on public market, um, or I shouldn't say public market, but uh, auction uh, sites like Shares Post and Facebook, uh, Shares Post and uh, Second Market. However, um, most companies have clearly said that if you're still employed and you engage in those types of transactions, it's cost for termination. Um, so most of the time when you see someone selling securities, it's because they've left uh, the company. Um, they have had they have a window of time in which they have to exercise their options um, post-termination of their employment. Um, and as you're aware, Alan, sometimes what that does is trigger tax consequences that force them to sell. As soon as they exercise their option, um, that's deemed to be compensation. Um, and there's a tax bill that's going to be due um, in the year following when they when they file their taxes. For a lot of these sellers, um, that's a real issue because the only asset that they have that comes close um, to meeting that tax obligation is the private security itself. And so they're forced sellers. Does the firm ever offer to buy when they exercise to to buy back those securities? They they do, and and that would um, that would generally be um, called a tender offer. Um, the firm internally will set uh, what's called a 409A valuation, uh, where they'll say, "Hey, we'll buy it back at you know X price." Um, and yes, uh, they they do indeed indeed have that. Oftentimes, what happens is is that 409A valuation or the price at which the company will buy back the securities is lower than what they can get. Sometimes substantially lower than what they can get by engaging into in a secondary transaction on their own. So, any advice for the buyers of these securities? Should they have an attorney involved to look at the documents, make sure it's all done right, or what? Uh being an attorney myself, I, I always recommend having an attorney involved. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, without question. Um, buyers need to be fundamentally aware um, of, of what they're getting into. I mean, practically speaking, when you engage in a private placement transaction, um, you're looking at documentation that needs to be reviewed by an attorney. Hey, John, we got to take a quick break. Uh, we're talking to John Porter on secondary markets today. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. We're here today with John Porter of Three Bells Capital. We've been visiting on secondary markets. So, John, before the break, we were talking about types of securities bought and sold. Let's review. Now, what are the common 
securities in this uh, secondary market that are being traded today? I think certainly the most common is Facebook, just because of the number of shares um, that have been issued, and also the fact that a lot of people use Facebook, so they're very comfortable with it. They know the product. Um, it's it's in many many ways a very dynamic company. Um, and never before has there been so much demand and supply for the same private security. Um, on the heels of Facebook, though, you would certainly have uh, companies like Twitter. You'd have Yelp. Um, Zynga was active, um, you know, pre um, their IPO um, uh, overtures. Um, LinkedIn, same same way before it went IPO. So it's uh, right now it's mostly um, Facebook, but I think that. Very, very rapidly here, you're seeing a, a secondary market develop, which I think has legs. Do you think the secondary market is forcing the IPO for some of these companies? That's an interesting question. Um, I I don't think it's forcing the IPO. The, the right of first refusal, um, which can be exercised by the company and by investors in the company, has the ability to fundamentally limit the number of shareholders um, that are on the capitalization table. Uh, that would be the one um, catalyst uh, that could force IPO if you go over 500 shareholders. Um, you're usually um, required without SEC, unless you have an SEC exception uh, to disclose your financials. And at that point in time, most companies just decide to IPO. Um, but I, I think what actually is happening in the, in the secondary market is that it's starting to change the way that companies think about offering liquidity to their early employees. And that, I think, is going to be the most interesting thing to watch over the course of the next year to two years. I think companies are starting to realize that they're actually losing employees because they're not providing enough of a facility for these employees to get liquidity from their shares. Um, I think what you're going to find is a happy medium begins to develop where the company sponsors and takes some modicum of control over how those shares are being offered and at what price. Um provides a certain amount of liquidity, but not so much liquidity that it disincentivizes the uh, the executives from from continuing to work at the organization. So the question, big, bigger question, let's, let's move off the uh, liquidity. Person sells, they come to you and they say, John, uh, you know, help me save my wealth in this volatile market. You right. Know? First of all, what, what's going on in the world today in your view? Well, I think at a very high level, you've got a lot more uh, headwinds than you've got tailwinds. It's a very dangerous market environment right now. You know, the crisis du jour is, is obviously what's happening in Europe. Um, but in, in reality, uh, there's sort of a worldwide financial crisis. I think there's a very good argument that uh, we never really came out of the recession that we were in in, you know, 2008, 2009. We sort of threw a lot of money uh, at the problem and a lot of stimulus and, and sort of turned on the printing presses. But we didn't actually solve any of the fundamental issues that are uh, that are facing the world right now. And I think part of that problem is what you see is you see a lot of cyclical solutions uh, being thrown at what I think are structural problems. So when the Fed comes in and lowers interest rates, you know, down to the quick, um, that doesn't really actually solve the fundamental issues uh, and the structural issues of 10% unemployment that's perpetuated for two years, uh, a broken consumer um, that's just not spending housing market that's devastated and not really showing much signs of recovery, except in select pockets. Uh, I think when you have structural issues, what you have to have are political solutions. You have to have a functioning legislature. You have to have a functioning executive branch. It's working in concert to change the laws um, that are necessary to to effectuate the change that you need across the system. 
I don't necessarily have a huge degree of comfort um, in any of the political systems that I've that I have any experience with that they can do that. And so I think until that happens, you're going to continue to have a lot of problems. Throughout the world, though, would you say the U.S. is still the best place to be? I would describe us as the tallest midget. So that's an interesting. <laughs> <analogy>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, what, what is it? He he was uh, you know the one-eyed man in the Valley of the Blind is king. Um, I, I think we're definitely we've got some structural advantages, right? So we have. You know, first and foremost, we have a, a centralized banking. Uh, we have the Fed. We have the Treasury Department. Uh, we have the ability to effectuate change at a fiscal and monetary policy level instantaneously across the entire country. You contrast that to Europe, and it's a vastly different situation. Although you have the same currency, the euro, you have you know individual countries which have individual interests, um, some of which are diametrically opposed to the other interests. Look at Germany versus you know Ireland, for example. Greece. So, you know, when you look at the United States, yes, I, I think there are some structural advantages. We're also the you know, the world's reserve currency. So thus far, we've been able to literally turn on the printing presses and print more money than existed in the system before and utilize that money to pay off debts. Um, it also allows us the opportunity to inflate our way out of the debt. So if we can appreciate our currency, then obviously we can pay off our debt faster because our currency is worth more than those that we're paying. So I think in that respect, the United States is still very, very strong um, and probably has the best chance of leading the world out of the issues that it's in right now. Um, but as you pointed out earlier, you know, the world is, is, is not getting globalized. It is globalized. Um, and so anything that happens in Europe is going to necessarily affect the United States markets. It's not looking real good for the Euro right now, is it? No, and I think that'll be the most interesting thing. Um, to see what happens there. Um, and I, there are a lot of Nobel Prize winning, very smart people on either side of that uh, coin, some arguing that it's going to perpetuate and some arguing that it's going to fall. Um, it, it's hard to imagine um, the euro, in my mind, surviving long term um, unless there are some real structural changes that are made to that system. And that means united fiscal responsibility. Um, that means a centralized banking system um, similar to the one that we have in the United States that has responsibility, you know, across all borders. And it's very, very difficult in the eurozone. You had stated that inflating our currency, making our currency stronger than other world markets, will help us physically. What are some suggestions that you might have to in, for America to do so? Well, again, I, it, that's a huge question. Um, that's a huge question. You've, you've got to fix the structural issues, right? So, you know, first of all, we have to get entitlement spending under control. Um, so things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, these aren't necessarily the crises du jour, they, they're, but they're the, the sort of underpinnings of the iceberg, right? And, so basically and, cut spending. Yeah, I mean, we it's... You've got to cut spending. Um, at, at some point in time, you, you have to tax more intelligently. Um, and, you know, ultimately... You the know, consum- I, I, I once heard Romney stand up and he said 37% of the current GDP is in government spending. And uh, he says that 37% of, of what gets spent out there is spent by the government. In other words, we have become so dependent upon the government for businesses and for this nation surviving that if uh, if the government fails 
then it it's going to devastate the rest of this economy. In order to keep the government fed, they have to you know tax and tax and tax and then continue to spend. You know, Romney actually was the one who made the comment, and he talked about under his platform he would cut that back to twenty percent, uh, which is interesting. Is you know I, I I've yet to hear other candidates come out there and 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 talk mm-hmm. about what they would be doing to fix this very problem, but. Uh, Fiscal responsibility, I think, becomes at the foremost of this thing. I couldn't agree with yeah. you more. And I think, you know, Romney's on the right track in the sense that he's one of the few people that's that's really putting forward proposals for actually fixing what's wrong. It, it's going to take more than glittering generalities and campaign speeches to actually make the changes. And I think, you know, when you look at that, you know, what does it actually take to make those changes? You're going to have to legislate them. So you're going to have to have a legislator and you're going to have an executive branch that are working enough in concert with one another to make those changes possible. What does it take to do that? I mean, this is getting heavy onto the political side, but, you know, our legislature is quagmired uh, in, in, in political activism, right? And you've got essentially lobbyists that are controlling every piece of legislation that comes out. The United States has got to have a Sputnik moment where the constituents as a whole, the American people come together and they say no more. We demand change. And at that point in time, you'll have a legislature and an executive branch that have the political backing to fight those lobbyists. Hey, John, we're running up against the break here, but I wanted to give the listeners a way. If they want to contact you, how do they do so? Um, available anytime uh, to speak with anybody that has questions about what we've covered today. Um, the easiest thing is probably email, which is john, J-O-N, at 3-T-H-R-E-E-Bell, B-E-L-L, dot com. Um, that's my personal email. Love to talk to anybody that has any questions. And you'll, you're uh, entertaining things on secondary markets together with uh, diversification and investing in today's volatile markets. That's exactly correct. Two, two decent-sized challenges. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, appreciate you being here today. And uh, we need to take a break now, but we've been visiting today with John Bell, the founder of 3Bell Capital. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to American Dreams with Alan Olson on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back. Well, we just visited here with John Porter of Three Bell Capital about secondary markets. Um, I'll tell you, it's, it's an interesting world that we have out there today. And with all the volatility that we have in the stock market and also the financial markets of the world, it's getting a little tricky to navigate the storms out there. It certainly is, and it was quite interesting his discussion about how this uh, the the private equities are or sh- shares of stock are being are the activity is is gaining, and the SEC might start regulating them because it's starting to become uh, a more regular practice with uh, auctions online. You know, what do you think, Alan? Um, do you think that more entrepreneurs are going to be turning to these types of ventures? You know, recently I, I sat down and had a discussion with a guy. He took his company IPO last year, raised $400 million, and he said the regulatory fees to do that cost him about $4 million. Now you could say, yeah, but you got $400 million. The flip side of that is since when did the government go into partnership with all your, your companies and businesses. It's big business. And uh, so they're, uh, you know, so as as regulation increases, of course, there's a cost associated with it. 
And um, the secondary markets have kind of opened up this vehicle, which allows people to kind of get under the radar. The question is, is that a good thing for America? Right. You know, does the government need to come in, do the regulation? Does it really advance things further? And and right now, it uh, secondary markets have gained momentum and, and popularity. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how far they hold into the future, though. So. Right. With but with unemployment increasing and the way the economy is looking at this point in time, what what is your analysis, Alan, from that standpoint? <laughs> you know, I, I, I saw an article that the unemployment is the lowest rate in three years, 8.6%. Wow. Little before that, you go four years ago, we were at 3% or 4%. So, you know, to to say that, uh, no, it, it wasn't the lowest, it was it had the lowest drop in three years. It went from 9% to 8.6% in November. I, I think that, uh, you know, w- when you get around 8.69% unemployment and there's continued uncertainty in the markets, a lot of change has happening out there. Um, you know, there's, they're saying, is it, who knows where, where the direction of the future is going? The winds are blowing in different directions. It could go up, it could go down. But the fact of the matter is you've got about 9% of America still out of work. Uh, there's a lot of people that are trying to get back into the workforce right now. Um, challenges in the economy, what's going on in Europe? Is Europe going to stay together or is the euro going to fail? Uh, if a financial market like that goes off the cliff, we got problems. You know, every single country in this world will be affected uh, from that. And um, well, you know, unemployment, Alan, um, is a is a tricky number when you see those uh, statistics because they don't take into account the fallout. There are mm-hmm. many who have fallen out of the system, and I have read or heard that it can be up to 10%. So when you're looking at an 8.6 unemployment rate, it might be 18.6, especially in some areas and or more. Like if you look at Detroit or certain pocket areas in our nation. And also the fact that this is not just unemployment in America. This is worldwide. There's a lot of unemployment going on throughout the world. So we have some interesting economy problems going globally. You know, I, I, I agree with that. And it's interesting for as much as the politicians stand up and talk about the unemployment and, and uh, you know, how bad things are out there. Let's talk about recently they ordered a billion-dollar contract uh, with the Air Force to build planes in Brazil. In I mean, Brazil? In Brazil, taking American jobs, sending it down to uh, South America, and uh, U.S. tax dollars going that direction. Now, that makes absolute no sense in this. Yeah. What would make our government award a contract to Brazil? I've also read that, uh, speaking of Brazil, um, after that massive oil leak at uh, in Louisiana, when we mm-hmm. had the oil leak and all deep sea digging, um, oil rigging was seized in a in America off our shores and then we took those leases and those rigs and leased them to Brazil and now Brazil is doing the same thing and they're making all the money and all the jobs that were lost in Louisiana uh, there were thousands of people laid off because they depend on that those businesses and then it was given to Brazil just uh, you, you wonder is the government too so big that it can't think 
<laughs> well, I'll tell you, they're they're trying to. I guess they're still at a gridlock right now. What's going back in Washington? You know about the cutting of the uh, the payroll tax spending, and and they they just can't come to agreement right. on on whatever's going on right now. I I think that this country does need to be overhauled. I think there are certain things that we got too much government. Uh, recently, I sat in a room and and listened to uh, Mitt Romney. He's he mentioned that thirty thirty seven percent of the gross domestic product, you know, the, the money that's spent throughout this nation, 37% is government. That's huge. That's government. our GDP, correct? Yeah, the GDP. And 37% GDP is, that is horrendous. Yeah, it, it, uh, it's, it's, it's government much. takeover. It, we will soon be with, if we continue in this course, will soon be with central control. And yeah. when you have central control that is so powerful, then it becomes more like communistic governments, dictatorships. They all have central control. Is that well, something I, I, I that we want? I wouldn't call wanted? it communism, but socialism, yeah. Well, well, in America, mm-hmm. yes. But when yeah. you study communism, when you study mm-hmm. dictatorships, it's strong central control. Control over GDP, control over everything. And when we're at 37% of central federal government control, it's something to be, is, is that what we want? Is well, that the a, direction we want to move it, it's in? It's a hungry machine. You can never keep it satisfied. In order to sustain it, it requires taxing more and yes. more and more. And uh, it's a never-ending vicious circle. So I, I think there's some overhaul that needs to be taken. Romney had indicated that he had a plan that would take the uh, – the, the spending back to 20% from 37%. And that would be nice, but that will be a big fight in Congress. Boy, well, it, everybody it, it, is screams, don't touch, okay, you do it, but don't touch my pie. <laughs> and I think that's the problem is nobody wants their pie. Everyone's going to have to share. Everyone in America, every person, every business, every government entity, everybody ha- is going to have to share in the cutting back and in the pain of what's going to happen in order to make our government more efficient again. You know, it, it's interesting. This last week I got a, um, well, you know, one, one point that Romney made, he says there's so much inefficiency in government. He says you have things like the Department of Labor. He says, what do they do? You know, what what exactly does that department do? And, you know, you get the Department of Agriculture and you get redundancy in the department, you know, the, the welfare uh, you know, he says it. Uh, he says you should try to centralize and consolidate and create greater efficiencies in this. So, so assign. What you mean is assign certain duties to the welfare department to agriculture, since welfare has to do with food, perhaps, and then uh, agriculture has to do with food. So maybe combining those and and tr- trimming things up. You got a lot of duplication there. That one in one hand is not speaking to the other. They continue to spend money. You know, at the end of the year they're like it isn't it isn't really where they running their department efficiently is right. where they able to adequately spend all their dollars. Right. And then one hand doesn't talk to the other and this is how contracts land in Brazil. Right. I had a uh, uh, email came across my desk, and this uh, this company was saying that they were getting ready. It's a pre-IPO company, a startup. They the, their business model was asking the government to start funding all their programs, and I'm like, this is really interesting. You know, whether or not the programs made sense, it was another allocation of pork barrel spending out well, there. Well, you know, I've been to many investment seminars. Uh, as you know, I do real estate, and that's my expertise. And they call it opium. 
OPM, Other People's Money. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, these are these are entrepreneurs that are saying, okay, it's free money out there. Let's go get it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting, but that should the government be in the seed money for businesses? That That's the question. And, you know, how much of businesses is our government going to own? You know, should they, they already own GM. Um, are they going to own all the automobile industry in America? Are they going to continue to go and own all the banks as they f- fail or after they fail? Uh, it, it's how much is too much? Yeah, yeah. It was a, you know, just fishing this last week. I was up on the river getting some steelhead and come across this uh, this man-made island. And the fishing guide says, you know how much they paid for that? I said, who paid? Oh, that's a government project to preserve the uh, the steelhead migration. I said, how much? It's a $400 million pile of gravel in the middle of the river. <laughs> <laughs> you can buy a lot of fish. Or you could just ban fishing for for that sake, and they'll probably the, right. the fish you know, alone. There the, you uh, go. Why don't, why don't we just ban the fishing for a few years, <laughs> let the steelhead reproduce, <laughs> and then allow the fishing rather than spending for... I mean... Four hundred million. Where's said, the thinking coming from? I, I said, so. So is that going to work? They said, well, we don't know. So the money got spent, though. Well, yeah. you know, there's much corruption in government. You know, a lot of business. You know, probably the island building companies and those contractors that do this type of work has a really good friend in politics, and perhaps there might. I don't want to. Well, impl- I, I don't want to imply yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have no idea. I have no I, I don't want to imply that, but that but, yeah. but that, that it, kind of crony capitalism does go on. Mm-hmm. Well, it, there's a lot that needs to be looked at and addressed. And so the point is, a lot of duplication and spending. There's a lot of bandwidth to take things out and to make it right. And uh, and I think that for the Americans to capture this stuff and make issues back in front of the Congress and the public is a good thing. This is Alan Olson. We'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to American Dreams with Alan Olson on AM 1220 KDOW. Welcome back. Boy, we've had quite a bit on the program here today. Secondary markets talking about government spending. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, Alan, I'm going to I'm going to turn the tables around here. I want to really talk about uh, overall keys to success. You work with a lot of uh, financially successful people uh, in your firm uh, as a CPA at Greenstein Rogoff Olson and Company. Can you tell us a little bit about their keys to success? Absolutely. You know, in in the midst of all this turmoil out there with volatility in financial markets and you know what you hear on the the five o'clock news every day. Life continues to go on. People continue to innovate new businesses and these models are uh, coming out and creating new jobs, making a lot of success into the future. So let's talk about some of the things that people that may be waiting for their golden ticket may want to consider as they're moving into their uh, field of dreams and getting rich fast. Okay, so um, one of the things when people come back to us and, um, and, and they look at how do I find success in my life? Um, you know, they, they come to us and say, you know, I think I got a great idea. And, uh, and, and so we'll sit down and we'll interview with them and, and, uh, you know, take them through a series of questions. And the first thing that we ask is where do you want to end up in three to five years? You know, uh, what do you think it takes to get there? You measure your resources, you measure what you have in, the, um, in the bank. And do you have enough to, to really launch yourself to get, to get to that, that pathway? 
Um, so after doing a self-evaluation, we haven't put together what's called a business plan. Mm-hmm. And the business plan effectively will will take out their, their budgets. It'll take the resources of people. Do they have the type of people that they want? You know, business never grow in a linear fashion. They grow in a, a, a step motion. You're always hiring people before you get, you know, the revenue that you're expecting. But you're trying to build something that has value for the future. Right. And so, um, you know, the people that get there, um, as the world continues to change, they need to also change. If you could just continue to do the same stuff, you know, you're probably not going to make it because, of, you know, you got to be quick on your feet in today's market. So it requires the entrepreneur to continue to innovate. And as they, as they innovate, they need to continually think differently, change, adjust to the market, focus on the relationships. Do they have the right relationships in order to get to where they need to be? Had a guy come to my office this week getting ready to launch his new company. And, um, and I said, well, what are you, uh, what are you looking for here? And he goes, I don't know. I'll just take anything that comes in front of me and w- with reference to people and money. I said, yeah. I said, you know, in order to really do things right, the more you have a more powerful network, uh, the more apt you are to, to succeed in your destination. Sometimes you could have a mediocre, mediocre product and be extremely successful if you have a strong Network in place exactly. and people that can enable you to be there. So relationships are paramount in starting your own business. Make sure you evaluate who's done what you are setting out to do before. You know, how do you get them signed up to your vision and um, and then, you know, put them on some type of advisory board. And then once, once you get all that set up, make sure that you define your vision, what you want to do, communicate that vision to others on your board and also within your organization, and then make your process accountable accountable to someone accountability is really important even in my line of work uh, especially with sales we have to make ourselves accountable because if we're not out there knocking on doors meeting people um marketing ourselves i i I sell service so without being accountable for our goals um you'll just spin in circles that really you won't get anything accomplished you have to write these goals down and be accountable for them. Life is a life is fun. You guys, as every one of us goes through life, we can do whatever we want to do. We can we can choose our own path, for good or for bad. But at the end of the day, we're going to be accountable for what we did with our time. That's true. Now, Ellen, I'm going to ask you a quick question because we're nearing the end of the year, and perhaps there, you know, those that do own businesses, we might have some listeners. What are some good tax tips um, that they should take into account now that we're closing the end of the year? First tip is to do something before December 31st. <laughs> a lot of people wait too long. And if, as you uh, as you look at uh, the year, make sure you have a good accounting of your records so you understand what your cash flow has been, your net income versus your net expenses, and and then you're able to start in on the tax planning. Um, when you look at tax planning, it's basically into four areas. You can either accelerate expenses, you can defer income, or you can look at using some type of tax credits that are in place, or you can look at some type of permanent exclusion, exclusion um, in there. But it's understanding where the tax code is. So acceleration of expenses, if your cash base is taxpayer, pay all those bills before the end of the year. Right. If you're uh, looking at deferring income, close your business for a week. Go on vacation. You're not checking the mail. And uh, when you get back, you effectively 
you know, make your deposits into the account because no one was there to make the deposits when you were when you were gone. And then your your income comes in this the second year. Well, this mm-hmm. is to avoid what, Alan? Basically, when you're nearing a tax bracket where it's going to be an increase in taxes, so by deferring that income, you won't raise up to the next bracket and pay higher taxes when you're at that break point line. Is that it? Well, I'll tell you, the way the government has structured the tax system right now, for the W-2 wage earner, it's very hard to do much at all. Okay. You know, it's just our system is not designed to help W-2 employees. Mm -hmm. But for the entrepreneurs, they have the ability and advantage of doing some tax planning that's out there. And so what what you want to do is make sure if you're not sure, if you feel you're paying too much tax, make sure that you contact a competent tax advisor that can help you through. It's, uh, there's a lot that goes behind tax planning. And the people, the successful people you usually find, they have a CPA that they've hired to help them get where they need to be. And that's where you come in, right, Alan? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Give us a call at GroCo. This is Alan Olson, America Dreams, the keys to life success. And this is Nadine Cameron. Thanks for listening to our show today. We'll be back next week.